Welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime, mystery and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of running a creative business in this challenging world. We'll hear from the people who make this possible, the authors, the cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast Book Show from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Hello, and welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, episode number 120. It is. My name is Adrian Hobart. My name is Rebecca Collins. And together we run Hobeck Books, UK independent publishers of the following four genres. Suspense. Mysteries. Crime. And thrillers. Welcome to the show. This is a show where we talk about the publishing process, running a company in a difficult world, the coronation. The cat. The cat. The weather. And all things in between. So welcome to the show, and our guest this week is Matt Adcock, who is a cyberpunk author. Yes, cyberpunk, which um, I confess I didn't know much about before, but fascinating genre, subgenre. Absolutely. He's got a, a fantastic um, career record as well, having interviewed many Hollywood stars as part of his uh, previous roles. He's also in PR as well, but he's a writer of cyberpunk, amongst other things. And His he... first son is the same name as my first son. And the reason will be revealed in the interview. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll reveal that. So Matt Adcock is our guest. Uh, we can't start the, this week without reflecting on the coronation. As we record this, this is Saturday evening, and King Charles has now got his crown, as indeed has Queen Camilla. And it was a splendid occasion. It was lovely. I'm, I was actually very surprised to find you watching it. Um <laughs> This morning, well, because you'd never really shown any interest in things royal before. Well, OK, so, yes, I, I I have no objection to the royal family. They're very pretty, um, but I I don't particularly... I'm not a fan of anything, you know, I don't follow them. They're quite interesting when they do bad things, that's fine. I, I don't <laughs> mind them being there. I'm not, you know, off with a head type person. But the Queen's funeral, you may remember, I just refused to watch it because it, it was a funeral, I don't want to watch a funeral. It's too depressing. And I had lots of work to do that day. But today, being a Saturday, I thought I'd put it on in the background. And I quite enjoyed it. You did. Uh, one comment you made was, too much music. <laughs> oh, for God's sake, they sang so much. I mean, really. <laughs> well, I, I was listening to a podcast which was reflecting on Coronation's past. And apparently, the first time they performed Zadok the Priest, which was the piece by George Frederick Handel, which uh, was first used for George II, uh, they actually sang it at the wrong point in the service, the <laughs> choir. And then they also sang some of the wrong words uh, the first time. I mean, it is a fabulous piece of music. It is synonymous with the anointing ceremony, which was behind screens this time. You'll have to remind me which one that is. Just hum it. Oh, come on. You can't expect me to do it. I can play on the guitar if you want. Uh, it was quite difficult fingering, um, if that's not... Uh, too graphic of way to put it but anyway um you know you know how it goes it's fine i'll, I'll google it later well anyway it's it's a fabulous piece of music i uh, know it was it was a, a a great occasion and um i thought i thought as usual 
knowing what goes into these things, because uh, having been involved in, in church services, <laughs> even on a minor scale, the amount of planning that goes into every aspect of it, it, it was incredible, really. And I loved his presence. Not not his presence on him being there, but his orb, his gardening glove, his ring, his bracelet. His, his spurs. You like the spurs? spurs. He got spurs as well. I mean, you know, it's like a birthday, a special birthday. Yeah, yeah. You know, they will be handed on to William as well. He'll uh, get them eventually. Well, obviously when Charles has the gone to a better place, surely, so he won't well, miss yeah. them. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I just thought the, the actual crowning element Putting the crown on Camilla was, <laughs> was funny. <laughs> yeah, she did look quite fearful when the the archbishop placed it on her head and didn't quite get the angle right to start with. Yeah, she was sort of prodding her hair out mm, the way, wasn't she? Yeah. It was almost like it wasn't comfortable, but it's, it's difficult to think. I'm sure it isn't very comfortable. Mm, yeah, you know, and um, what's the phrase? The terrible millennial phrase people used props to uh, put the penny mordant for holding that sword quite as steadily as she did for hours on end. Props, what's that mean? Oh, uh, I guess it means, uh, you know, congratulations to, or... Oh. You know, it's one of those dreadful phrases. Anyway, I thought she did, she did amazingly uh, to hold that saw, which weighs three and a half kilos, for quite, you know, uh, as long as she did. Yes, and I thought, so her outfit was apparently some designer outfit. I thought it was deliberately um, emulating... Henry VIII-style woman's clothing or something? Um, well, she has her own <laughs> style, and it, it's usually that sort of thing. Um, but Penny Mom, well, one person commented, why have they nicked a Starfleet uniform, Admiral's uniform, from one of the <gasps> Star Trek did. films? Yeah. She totally did. Yeah. yeah. It, you know, ceremonial outfit. <laughs> anyway, uh, no, it's all gone off successfully, and uh, that's fabulous. But uh, interestingly, it has had an impact on publishing because the number one book is a children's book called King Charles. <laughs> uh, in the country at the moment. And Harry, is um, his book is the number one audio at the moment as well. Oh, spare, yeah. Spare. Um, uh, and the official order of the service is number 10 in the book charts at you the moment. You can buy that as a yeah, book? Yeah, people have been buying it at number 10. Uh, we ought to, while we're talking about charts, congratulate a friend of the programme, Rachel McLean, for being number one in the ebook charts. Yes, and for the Simon, Lighthouse Murders. Simon McLean is number two, so that that's interesting Blimey, in itself, isn't it? Yeah. That you know, two independently published authors, two very successful independently published authors are um dominated the charts. Well it's interesting because she sent an email just I've just read it and it, it arrived today where she's outlining to her readership, which is very, very considerable now, uh, that she's worked out the next twenty books she's gonna write. Oh she's a I was going to say Johnson Peace. <laughs> well, I mean, certainly a, a you know. A so planner. what she's doing, she's using some of the fringe characters from her previous books, the uh, Zoe Finch series, I think, is one of them, isn't it? Yeah. And she's spinning them off into sub series as oh, well. Right. But she's worked it out now. That's great, and I know that she was in Twenty Books uh, Seville recently. Do you think? I mean, this is this started me thinking. We were talking about this on AI about people using AI to generate plots and then filling the gaps. Mm. Is she thinking that way, maybe, that you can actually feel confident that you can knock out 20 books? I mean, I just wonder. Oh, because I don't she, know. She's That's always quite... been at the vanguard of, of trying new things. Yeah. Um, and famously, when she writes, she actually writes by using dictation. She does, yes. Sat in the car doing the school run, she says. So, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's a, actually, listen back to the episode where we, we got Rachel on, and we've, you've seen her at London Book Fair, and we bump into her at events. Um, she is an inspiration, without question. We wish we could uh, repeat her commercial success. Perhaps we will one day. 
uh, but we will we'll endeavour to keep doing that. But it's uh, it's fascinating, really. Yeah, her story it's a, it's a great story. So yeah, listen to the podcast. Um, it was about eighteen months ago, wasn't it? Mm. She was on. Now um, we were talking about Penguin Random House just in passing because Harry's book Spare is the number one <laughs> audio book. Um, what I wanted to bring up was that they are shutting down their third-party distribution hub in Grantham, mm. which is apparently going to affect about 200 third-party publishers. 200? Oh, That's sorry, quite a lot. Actually, no, maybe I've got that wrong, but a lot of a lot of publishers. Yeah. 200 staff are going. That's, uh, sorry, okay. just to clarify that. So they're shutting it down. Um, and I think that we have approached in the past someone, uh, another sort of rival who were actually due to be taken over by Penguin Random House. Oh, Simon and Schuster. Simon and Schuster and asked them whether they would consider distributing our books into retail. So this is not an unusual phenomena in terms of that practice. But if Penguin Random House are pulling out of that and just in an effort to save money, even though they have had the best-selling book of the year, it is a big blow, I think, to people who previously have relied on that service, I would imagine. I mean, we're not in that position yet. We're looking at another solution to get some representation into retail because the fact is that realistically you need to have uh, a, a, an ongoing sales relationship with the retailers and they're just not interested in talking to small publishers like ourselves so you have to go and find somebody to represent you mm. in that fashion and there are a number of outfits who did this and or do this and penguin random house have been doing it for other people um, but clearly there's no money in it anymore. So sad for the 200 people likely to lose their jobs, but also a massive blow to the uh, to the wider UK publishing economy mm. and, and ecosystem. But we do have some better news, don't we, in terms of printing and publishing? We that... do. This is a really significant change. Mm. So another email landed this week, and initially, uh, you know, I almost skipped past it, as you do sometimes. <laughs> um, but actually, this was a really important one. It came from the IPG, the Independent Publishers Guild, which we are members. And it was to announce that after long negotiations, CPI, who are one of the two biggest book publishing firms in terms of actually printing books in the UK, have done a deal with Gardeners. Now, Gardeners are the really the sole distribution network left mm. in this country, uh, and they do everything. And the relationship is this. CPI are going to move into essentially print-on-demand with a direct relationship to Gardeners in a similar way to the way that Ingram Spark have previously been the only person, people doing this. But this is a difference. So if Gardeners get a, a request from a retailer for a particular book, they will then go direct to CPI and order it to be printed. And that is a complete different situation to where we would have to, you know, run stock. Or it, it's, you know, with Ingram, their their relationship with gardeners and into bookshops was not that strong at times. It breaks down quite often, doesn't it? We found that. Well, the, the difficulty is that um, the discount, the retail discount we have to set with our Ingram books is on the low level and there are some bookshops that won't buy a book at that discount they want a higher discount which they can get from books that they get from gardeners um, yeah. you know who are yeah. printed at places like clays so what some publishers are saying they're going to do now is all of their stuff from cpi they do the print run but if they have a run on or uh, it becomes a popular book what we have had to do with our relationship with clays who are the other big uh, outfit 
is that we have to you know contact them on a regular basis to find out how many are left in stock that would never be a problem anymore because that would be directly dealt with in the relationship between gardeners and cpi and you would just take the you know you would take the sale but the interesting thing is because i mean you know it's a very competitive industry and i wonder if clay's might react in some way. Well, they're going to have to. And Ingram as well. We, look, we have no complaints about Clay's. We've had a fantastic um, relationship with them in the last couple of years. And in particular, they've been very helpful, haven't they, with the sales we did recently into Malta. Oh, which, which completely. Was... I've got, you know, and even when something did go wrong with Clay's and it was somebody's fault at Clay's and they were, they fessed up straight away, they were, then they yeah. rectified it as quick as they possibly which could. Is, so I've had a great... A very different approach to some of the other people in this industry, mm. you know, uh, who never take responsibility, Amazon. But anyway, it, <laughs> it, 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 is, um, it, it is a significant change. Now, Ingram Spark immediately responded, or at least it coincided. Yeah, I was going to say, strangely we don't know for coincided. sure. But... Well, at the beginning of May, they decided that they're no longer going to charge setup fees for your titles. And this was between twenty five fifty dollars, wasn't it? Something like yeah. that. Yeah, and also you had to pay if if um, you, you made a uploaded a revised version, yeah. which that was actually the big stinger for us because uh, um, sometimes we have a quote that comes in late for the cover, or there's a couple of typos, and we, you know, yeah, on we, Amazon, yeah, you upload it to Amazon, it doesn't cost anything. But Ingram was always twenty five dollars each time, and I always thought, oh, I don't want to pay that. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, obviously, you know, I mean, so many books get published. With typos, we we try and weed them out, and there's always something creeps through. It doesn't matter what it is, but you know, if you get it down to about five, you're doing well. I yeah. think. I think that because you know there are some very popular books that are out there, and goodness me, I've narrated books that have been out for ten years, and they're full of typos still. And these are the retail versions. So, um, you know, it is a nature of the industry that things get missed. But obviously, a lot of the effort in production is to get those out of the way. But if it's costing you twenty five dollars a time to correct a spelling mistake or a grammar error or something like that, then that is a problem. That is expensive in relative terms. Now, they have just decided they're going to make that a free thing. They're yeah. not going to charge for that anymore. And that's quite a lot of money, I would have thought. That's a lot of revenue, but that mm. must be a response surely to this big threat to them, which is CPI and the relationship with gardeners. And we something that is irresistible in terms of wishing to explore it from our perspective because one of the things that is a drag for you because you do this is to have to keep checking stock levels not having a way of checking online how many books of the 200 300 400 books that you've printed yeah. are still available to distribution is a pain and also one of the i think the biggest benefit of this change is if we print at clays and we print at, say 200 books and good sales to start with, but as as is natural, you know, they sort of slow down, slow down. But then you get to sort of 20 books left and you think, do I want to print 200 again and pay storage costs for um, 12 yeah, this, months plus? This is that is a very, very, very good point is that, you know, obviously the the general pattern is that you will sell more books at the beginning of a book's first three months than you will a year down the line particularly with paperbacks yeah right and so yeah but it's uneconomical to knock off another hundred at that stage you just can't do it at this you know you have to order like 200 to make it worthwhile yeah we have faced this issue 
yes, it has been a problem. So that wouldn't be a problem anymore because any short run, you know, run ons of, of a popular book can be absorbed by that system and it will be done mm. automatically. And that is that's huge. That is that is terrific, actually. Mm. So uh, we'll watch that with with interest, and I think we'll we'll have to you know consider which printer that we use and what system we use in future. But I think that's been quite a seismic change in our side of the market. No question about it. Yeah. Okay, that wraps up uh, the news for this week. Uh, let's get to, get to our feature interview, which is with Matt Adcock. Um, I didn't really know what cyberpunk was. And uh, I think that was the obvious question to ask him when we started. Well, I actually got confused with steampunk, didn't I? But you did. You did. Very much so. Hello, Aki. The cat has arrived, as you may have heard. She's not saying a lot now. She's just <laughs> staring at you going, why are you waving a microphone in my face? Get out of my face. Anyway, um, we'll talk to the wonderful Matt Adcock. Matt Adcock, thank you for joining us on the Hobcast Book Show. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Got to start with one question because it's something I need clarification on. Sure. Cyberpunk. Okay. Um, most of our listeners probably aren't familiar with it. So what are we talking about when you, you've got a passion for it, you write in it? What are we talking about? Great. Yes. I mean, I am very passionate about it. And if you've seen a, anything like Blade Runner at the, at the cinema, you'll have some idea what cyberpunk is. It's basically a dystopian future world where there are large corporations that run most of everything there are also small individuals fighting back against it. And that could be um, detectives. It could be hackers. It could be, you know, robots. Um, so it's that kind of juxtaposition between high tech and low life is the sort of standard definition. Right. In, in that context, you're, we're basically watching a world where we're quickly. I was going to say, that sounds like reality <laughs> to me. That future. <laughs> it is terrifying how accurately um, some things have been predicted, you know, via sci-fi films and books. Um, and the cyberpunk edge of it seems to be one that is uh, being acclimatised and taken on board by lots of tech companies. In fact, if you want to work for Xbox, you have to read Snow Crash, which is one of the sort of revered cyberpunk texts um, uh, as part of your induction programme. So um, that's quite a fascinating. I, I like the idea that you have to read a book to get a job yeah. somewhere. But at the we same time... do that. Yeah, but I mean, in in a way that that is quite eerie, isn't it? That you know that part of the indoctrination process for working for Xbox and Microsoft is is to to read. I mean, admittedly, I'm sure it's a very good book. But what, what what's the thinking? Do you think behind that? I think it probably alerts you to dangers that are coming down the line in terms of tech, uh, but also hopefully would stimulate you to you know embrace wild opportunities and and push the boundaries i think that's what they're hoping for um rather than training up an army of hackers to take over the world which is also a possibility yeah absolutely yeah true so when does your fascination for this sort of area come in did you start i mean i'm i'm not um in the cyberpunk side of things but i'm certainly a bit of a sci-fi geek oh, uh, me too really yeah but, but you know my my epiphany with that question, apart from Tom Baker as Doctor Who, <laughs> is being seven years old and watching the first screening in Cambridge of Star Wars, A New Hope, episode four, uh, whichever one you want to call it, um, that just absolutely transformed my mind from there on. And I think all the neurons rewired that night. Yeah. That explains oh, a lot. <laughs> I'm pretty with you on that. Um, Sci-fi, A New Hope, uh, Star Wars, is the first film I saw at cinema that I can really remember. 
and has had a lasting impact on my life. I called my first son Luke, so um, every night I can Dude, say to him, "Oh, wow, this is Luke." <laughs> nice. So he's 26 now. He's pretty sick of me, you know, acting Darth Vader on him. But um, and doing the dad quote, of course, <laughs> or the father uh, quote. Uh, and at Christmas time, saying, Luke, I felt your presence and stuff like that. You know, um, <laughs> we do that one, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, uh, yeah, in, in, just in that spirit, uh, my eldest son is called Ben. So nice. uh, there you go. <laughs> did, you, did you give him Kenobi as a middle name? Because I wanted to give Skulker to my Luke, but my wife's too sensible and wouldn't let me. <laughs> oh, I wanted it to be Maximus because Gladiator had just come out at that point, oh, nice. uh, 2001 ish. <laughs> And, um, and that was that was Vito. But the, the, the problem is, with a name like Hobart, uh, my nickname at school was Hobie One Kenobi, you know, yes. Hobie One and all that sort of thing. It, it stuck with me all my life. And so it felt just, you know, I thought that Ben would probably face the same sort of thing. Why not call him Ben? Yeah. You know. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. I mean, I applaud it. My favourite guest I had um, um, when I was at a book for university, we had a speaker come over from the States. He had called his first son Jedi. And I was like, as a first name, I'm like, yes, that's that's respect for that. Absolutely. And what about when the <laughs> when the option came up for declaring your religion on the census? Uh, I've done yes. it at least once. Oh, on, you know. I have put down Jedi. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, if only there was a, a tangible force that we could tap into, you know, um, and to make the world a better place. I'm, I'm sure the Tories will suppress it, but um, I don't know if you're allowed to politics on your podcast it creeps in occasionally it creeps in occasionally <laughs> and, and so in terms of you know that as a, is, a, is a good place to start in terms of having a passion for it where does it deepen when did it really grip you um oh, you know yeah, for, for life point. really um i started writing a fake diary uh which was like a wild adventure of the sort of life i'd like to be living and that started at school um and it kind of grew from there. My English teacher caught me writing it one day and, and wanted to read some. And then he said, we should carry on writing this. This is, this is the sort of thing. We should definitely, uh, you know. So, so buoyed up by that, um, I wrote my first manuscript and took me an incredibly long time to find a publisher because I didn't have the money to self-publish it. Um, I wanted to, you know, actually have it stand on its own two feet and eventually found Burton Mayers Limited, who are a funky young sort of um, independent publisher. Mm. And they took a chance on it um and it's been great you know um the joyful thing about having a novel in the world is is the feedback as you guys must know and during lockdown an artist read it and said this would make a great comic or graphic novel and i was like yes please but i, don't, I can't draw so um he said well fortunately if you script it i can draw it and we did a kickstarter we got about three thousand pounds uh to finance the first issue and it's now going to be a series so every chapter of the book becomes a comic in its own right and then we'll have a graphic novel to you know sell to a publisher at the end uh yeah so that's that's the and then we'll get a netflix series and that's, that's the yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, that's, i love that though i mean how did you go about with the crowdfunding how was that difficult to it's terrifying i tell you because we use something called kickstarter which is an all or nothing gambit so you've set a target and if you make the target great everyone pays and you get the money but if you don't meet the target nobody pays and it just goes down as a failure so it's quite a public kind of um thing to do and it was yeah it's nail biting but um fortunately we not only made the target but you can put a stretch goal in if you want to try and do something beyond what you originally uh, envisioned and our vision i thought nothing ventured nothing gained we got in touch with an actual judge dread artist from 2000 ad 
and asked if he would do an alternative cover for the comic. And um, he said, yeah, sure, um, about £500 is my rate. So we like added a stretch goal for £500 and got it. And so we now have two versions, which is great. We've got the limited uh, CQ uh, artist one, and we have the normal, which is um, just makes my inner geek so happy. <laughs> Oh, totally. Yeah, well, no, me it's... too. You know, I love that idea that, you, you know, that's going to be sort of collectible then. The, uh... Yeah, that's the plan. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fantastic. And it, I I really think it's one of the best um, innovations, I think, in publishing in the last two or three years is the development of Kingstar. I mean, I know of one author who's very well known who has gone for the um, – I can't remember how much – investment it was but i think each copy cost him thirteen hundred dollars to make uh, because it was leather not just leather bound but it was hand carved and all this sort of thing and he actually raised seven and a half million dollars doing this blimey without you know and and so goodness knows what people are actually buying it for but that was his invest you know he he was risking that and he created a prototype so there is, there is that's is one extreme. But I noticed that one of your most recent projects is to to write also for people who, you know, for younger audience aimed at 10 to 12. And you did a crowdfunder for that too. Yeah. It, well, I kind of got the bug. Um, and Burton May has, again, stepped up to publish it. But being uh, an unknown quantity of sort of um, cyberpunk for younger audience, they um, didn't put a big budget behind it. So I wanted to have enough to play for some marketing costs and um you know really contact schools and you know get it out there and and that's worked well so the getting an audience via kickstarter is 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 a fun way to do it because instead of pre-sales where people kind of click on amazon you're directly pre-selling to them so if you can do the margins and make a profit on on the you know um, what you offer and offer them some nice extras as well so it's not just getting the book but if you get it via kickstarter you get it signed and you get art cards and things that you wouldn't have got if you'd just gone to a shop to get it um and that way it gave us some collateral to kind of um yeah push it out into in different directions which you might not get if you just do a standard standard launch i, I that's really admirable and, and what's been the, the pickup on that because you know is there an, is there a, a ready audience who's been waiting for this opportunity <laughs> for something aimed at them i mean i don't know if it's a huge audience we've sold about three three or four hundred copies at launch so you know it's something it's it's definitely i've got friends who put stuff out and and done like double digits on launch day which is you know it's kind of slightly disappointing i guess if you you put so much work into something and um but it's not all about mass numbers it's about the connection my my favorite thing that happened with complete darkness buying the comic is that someone made they whittled and painted two of the main characters it took them weeks and then they sent them to me after you know explaining what they'd done and these now sit on my mantelpiece and they're absolutely brilliant you know like yeah yeah i love that to have inspired somebody to to go to that much trouble is fantastic i think we're more likely to get crocheted detectives aren't we or you what if you have that you've had sent to you uh you had some bookmarks didn't you oh yeah oh, it was a, cool. yeah it's just on twitter i mentioned that i was what was i using as a bookmark it wasn't a street it was a receipt or something it wasn't was a it? rasher of bacon but it, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, i think it was just a receipt and some la- lady made me two really pretty wooden Excellent. bookmarks with tassels and all sorts it's really sweet that, so, that's great isn't it yeah that kind of audience connection um 
And I need to ask you, actually, you guys, because my mm. next project, my work in progress, is an actual heist thriller. So it's not cyberpunk at all. This is a, a real world, for want of a better word, um, uh, crime novel. And um, it's a very different discipline because whereas with sci-fi, you can make up anything and it, then it's suddenly law and, and it's a thing. Um, trying to write in the real world, you're, you're limited by what actually can be done. And also... Um, time points so as i've said it in the 90s so i'm, I'm always furiously looking up kind of you know what records are out there and, and you know our reference points yeah. are easter eggs so they so i can't have people enjoying media that weren't out you know um like avengers or whatever um yeah so any any tips for for budding um heist crime fight writer would uh would be very welcome okay well oh. we can weep some in and uh but what the, i think the first thing is you're quite right about you know, needing to to work within reality. Yeah, because people notice. Because if you if you, as soon as you introduce cops yeah. into the investigation, th- there will be um, a way they had to operate in the particular yeah. time period you were working, and indeed what evidence they could gather. And while you know a lot of crime, right? I mean, I'll give you an example. We had a, a submission this week uh, that I was reading, and. My and I didn't read much beyond the first three pages simply because the cop came in and did all the wrong things straight away Gosh, um, yes. to the body, like covering it up. Um, no, that's not going to happen. <laughs> um, and you don't arrest, you know, the, okay, the person who's called it in, you don't arrest them straight away on your own uh, and, and, and you know, charge them with murder straight away. I mean, it's <laughs> kind of like, you know, it, yeah. it isn't, that's not how it works. And and so I just felt, well, you know, if you can't take the trouble to figure that out and, and work to something roughly procedurally correct, then there's no point proceeding with this. Yeah, because you can be a bit creative around what yeah, actually sure. happens, especially in terms of time, because okay. in real life it's very slow. But, you you know, you have to speed it up a little bit. So there, there is that. But you're doing I mean, the most important thing is if you're setting it historically, you have to get that detail right. Mm-hmm. And so it, it is. Um, it's amazing how the mind plays tricks that that some period... Let's take the 90s then. A lot of the things we remember as being, you know, the hits of a particular year... This is why Popmaster works with Ken Bruce, isn't it? Because (laughs) our mind plays tricks and we... We assume because we were dancing to it at, at university or whatever, it must have been the year it came out. And actually, it's three years old and it just had a resurgence and all that sort of. You see I what I mean? Yeah. mean yeah. Or sometimes you're convinced, aren't you? You think, I know exactly what year that came out. And then you look it up and you think, no, it can't be. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, that has happened. You know, I, one of my characters was playing a Call of Duty game and then I looked it up and it hadn't been released then. So I was like, okay, that kind of thing. Um, mm. Yeah. Also, and, and that is. It's so easy to get wrong. But we, I mean, actually, one of our authors, and he won't mind me mentioning this, he will be listening to this, um, <laughs> created a, a vegetarian option for McDonald's that never existed. Wow. Oh, and, wow. and we did look it up, didn't we? Uh, and, and, and I got very, very... <laughs> you can't put that in. It never existed. It was only available in the Ottawa region for two weeks in <laughs> 1987 or whatever. And I just, yeah. you, you know, you can't have that in. It's just got to come out. Another author (laughs) whose his series is set in the 80s, late 80s, and I thought, I know that period really well. I was doing my GCSEs, and and he had somebody do press 1471 on a telephone. I thought, ah, I know you couldn't do that when I was 16 because that was the sort of thing I would have wanted to do. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, that's a good point. Um, The other thing is kind of you do get very strange um, looks 
um because uh, i've been into like a bank and asked about their response times might have been back in in the 90s and it was like what <laughs> yeah no that's 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 entirely fair it's um, a card that just says writer researching on it, it yeah, I, think, <laughs> I, think, I think most crime authors the successful ones usually have a deep throat within the um police you know, retired copper who who went through this sure. and investigated robberies or whatever it would be, or someone who worked in that environment is to find somebody who can tell you how it was mm. uh, and give you those little glints of detail that that enrich what you're doing. You know, quite apart from the sort of yeah. character de- uh, development and the plotting and all the other aspects that crime books demand. Um, you know, having that insight and and it's interesting because we've got to know um, R.C. Bridgestock, who are in fact. Uh, it's Bob and Carol. Yeah, so and, I'm guessing Robert for R. But... Yeah, and and Bob um, was a very very senior copper in West Yorkshire and was the the uh, policing expert on the first series of Happy Valley. And oh, so, yeah. um, Sally Wainwright, who wrote it, actually used a lot of the things he did in that first series she rewrote the whole series based around the, the sort of things that he had experienced. And, and so there are people who, who can help uh, do that, but I think that they always have some great anecdotes that they're not, you know, <laughs> they vicariously like to be reflected in the, in the fiction. So that, that, you know, if you can find someone who can do that for you, fantastic. Yeah. Well, if anyone's listening and they were working on robberies during the nineties, then um, <laughs> yeah. either, either as a crook or as a, as a, what well, a cop, then, you know, uh, please do get in touch. Um, it's, it's interesting though you pick that period because it, it's it's on the cusp of when things got electronic and you know the yeah. electronic evidence um, became you know nowadays it's very hard to get away with anything like that. Exactly. Um, yeah, it just isn't possible because you know your phone's going to give you away if, if nothing else. You know you happen to be in that area and, <laughs> no. and, and you CCTV, see all modern things. Yeah, right. Every modern crime. Um, Drama has to have the phone drop down the sink, or oh, yeah, they always use their phone, don't they? Yeah. You know, or use a burner <laughs> phone. <laughs> it just has to be, otherwise you get get nabbed nowadays. Yeah. So um, it's it's an interesting thing. The other thing is, I mean, it's not a pitch, don't worry. But um, is <laughs> the the criminals' div, div, um, plan is to stage some terrorist atrocities, which obviously never happened in the UK um, at that time. So they, you've got Tory ministers' children being tied to transit vans full of bombs um, near airports, and all of the authorities are freaking out about this whilst the robbery happens because it's a pure diversion tactic, a very nasty one, albeit. But um, it, you know, it's it's sort of the shock and awe factor that, that ISIS and stuff were going for um, with their horrific acts, um, but on mainland Britain, you know. So it's kind of like a, a kind of a, quite a jump of what if. Well, absolutely, but I mean, it, that that works um, if it's conceivably possible to have done it, and people, you know, you create antagonists who are motivated and and you know, disc- despicable, uh, despicable, despicable enough, yes, <laughs> yes. Um, dastardly enough, I should think, uh, to do things like that, then you can get away with it. And I think you know, a good example of someone who who took the nastiness of what people did. To the, to a, uh, a very great extreme, but made it work is someone like Terry Hayes when he wrote "I Am Pilgrim," because some mm. of those scenes are just so unbelievably yeah. unpleasant um, and very very nasty. That's the a fingerprint fit. book, isn't it? Yeah, but at the very, very, yes, the cover is fingerprint. Um, but you, you know, it, it, it's amazing how dark you can take it. 
well i'm all about complete darkness so you know that's that's my absolutely my <laughs> mo um and people like reading dark so okay well that's cool i i just i enjoyed the um the psychological side of it as well because as a, i've got a great i just modestly i've got a great monologue of the main baddie uh sort of trying to theorize whether he's actually a bad person or whether he's just doing something bad you know because he's greedy and how whether that puts him on the spectrum of evil you know um so it's quite I, I like that kind of thinkiness rather than it just being surface level um action although mm. there's gonna be plenty of that you know. no, that, that's an interesting thing i mean this is this is one of the 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 great problems for crime writers is the sense of trying to express the motivation and the the, the mentality of the bad guys um because you tend to see it from you know you're trying to chase it, it's usually seen from the perspective yeah, of the people the either the victims or the people yeah. who are chasing the you know uh, yeah, afterwards yeah. and um it, it's the reason why you always uh in episodes of doctor who get the bad guys giving their uh soliloquy about why yes. they're doing it <laughs> yeah oh capturing james bond and i'm just before i kill you i'm going to tell you my why my plan is all like this you know yeah yes exactly exactly <laughs> and uh you know but there's nothing you can do about it or you know indeed the imp- scooby-doo then like scooby-doo a little bit are oh, you yes you dastardly kids you've got me again i was going to do this and this and this and it's yeah. because of this and this and yeah i know i always <laughs> think my favorite um sort of evil monologue is the emperor uh at the end of return of the jedi oh, where yes. he's going oh i'm afraid your rebel fleet will be you know all that sort yes. of thing <laughs> nice uh exposition yeah um and you know i've told this story on the podcast before but you'll appreciate this this is something that's has haunted me all my you know for the last 15 20 years probably yeah. but i was working at bush house for the bbc and in the bar there's a one. There was a wonderful bar at Bush House before they closed it, down in the basement, and it was just the best bar in London as far as I was concerned because they had all these different language services hanging out with oh. each other. So you had this fabulous sort of Tower of Babel thing. Did they have thing. fish? Uh, they did have a fish, massive fish tank. It was about twenty foot long on long one wall. Wow! And there's this bloke at, drinking a pint of directors at the bar as I'm trying to order my beer. And I'm looking across at me going. I recognise him from somewhere, but who is it? <laughs> and I'm looking across and looking across. It's only when I got back to Hoburn Tube that I realised it was Ian McDermott, who was the emperor in Star yeah. Wars, oh, wow. drinking at the bar. That is quite cool. Nice. That is and cool. I just, you know, from then on, I just thought, I'm kicking myself. I could have bought the emperor a pint um, yeah. <laughs> and probably avoided getting the, the force lightning fingers thing. What's the force lightning fingers well, he, thing? Well, this is, this is his number one weapon. He uses the the... the the dark side of the force to shoot lightning. Lightly, then. I, I, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> That's Sorry, this is digressed, but this is the Hello. nature of the show. So <laughs> it's all good. You, you um, must, I, uh, you must forgive us, Matt. So let's just turn it full circle a little bit on that. Sure. When now you're writing in a in a different genre to to the one that inspired you the first time, what do you take then from writing cyberpunk and and being in that community into your crime writing? Cool. Well, there's going to be lots of Easter eggs. Um, ah, I, I like Easter eggs. Uh, so the um, there'll be Tarantino-esque sort of discussion of films uh, between the robbers and their, their downtime or their time to kill. Lots of um, quoting of Aliens script from James Cameron. Um, and uh, yeah, one of them even likes to dress up, you know, as Hicks, as um, he's got a, a Colonial Marines helmet and stuff. So um, 
you know, I think uh, that's that kind of cosplay. Because being in the comic book world now, I get to go to those sort of conventions and and people come fully kitted out and as all sorts of weird and wonderful things. And I often get to hold a comic or my book and take pictures, which is great. Um, and you do, and like you, you and you know the emperor, I got you get to meet some of the actual stars because when they when they finished making money signed autographs, they sometimes come around and look at the rest of the stands and he gets chats with them, which is kind of cool. So, um, um, have you met anyone famous then? I mean, I've met a few people at conventions, like the Red Dwarf cast and stuff like that. Um, oh. But in my other life, as a film reviewer, I was a film reviewer for 20 years uh, for a group of newspapers. I used to go to the junkets and, and actually meet some stars. It's just a lot of fun. So uh, meeting people like Denzel Washington was just like total man crush. And the charisma <laughs> oh. factor was off the scale. Um, Kira Knightley, you know, for different reasons. Um, uh, <laughs> and, um incredibly sweary but a lot of fun and um so a lot of editing had to, had to be done on her interview but um you know that that sort of thing they're just people at the end of the day did, mm, so did you yeah. have to go through that that process where you get 10 minutes with whoever yeah. it is i've always been I, I, like on um uh, notting hill when he he's yeah. horse and hounds yeah horse and hounds not hair and hounds <laughs> Is it's it? a lot like that. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, we'll have to figure out which one it is. Probably is horse and ass. But you know, it, it, but that that comes with a, an enormous pressure. And I always watch those with you know because I used to work on BBC Breakfast, and and they would always get their turn for a big Hollywood yeah. thing. Yeah. And if they couldn't persuade people to come to Salford to go and sit on the sofa, which was pretty rare. Yeah. Um, then they would do the junket thing, and of course, then you get this really awkward thing where. That you, you've got 10 minutes in which to strike up a rapport with some major star who has yeah. spent the last three days sat in the same hotel room. Same questions. Yep. Yeah. Mm. And so people do the word association game to try and spin oh, all, all sorts of little tricks, don't they? Um, yeah, it's true. And so, I mean, you know, it, it always feels, I mean, I just couldn't live with that pressure of having yeah. that tiny window having their press publicist telling you, right, he's not going to talk about that, that, yeah. that, or that. And you've got 10 minutes uh, and in which, you know, and if you're doing it for TV, you have to get the lights set up and all that malarkey. It's, it's terrifying. Yeah, it is terrifying, but it's also a good discipline. It's, you know, and you can, it, it makes you better if, if you're a good journalist and you don't, you don't just trot out the same questions, you know, did you enjoy making the film or, you know, what's this character like? You kind of, you start to feel left field and that's kind of, I've developed that, with my blog because um when i started reviewing the films they didn't have an online presence it was, yeah, it was back well, well long time ago uh so i started a blog just to, to put my film reviews up there and then obviously the, the star interviews too went on there um but you want to yeah, role play if i was a reader what would i like to read you know what would be interesting for me that's that's my you know my, it's my rule of thumb always has been so if i write a press release for a company i might you know what's the journalist want to actually but you know they don't want to hear how great we are and how lovely everything is they, they want something interesting yeah that's interesting so let's let's talk about your communication professional yeah. background and when you're writing a press release because I, I i i haven't um written that many but i i've certainly been the recipient of plenty <laughs> of terrible ones terrible um, ones yes and, and i do recognize that thing of you know uh basically you know I think people wrote, I mean, when I was sitting in local radio, this was the case. People wrote to us on the basis that they would get on the radio station because they'd written a book and they lived in the area and that was enough. And there was no angle. Okay. Uh, and that's and that's always the trick, isn't it? I mean, you're, yeah. you're thinking as a journalist and trying to put yourself in when you're writing that release. 
what is the thing that's actually going to hook someone in and make them show some interest in it? Because they're going to receive a dozen books that day. Yeah, absolutely. So I felt like I'd been in training for when I uh, got to launch Complete Darkness. And so what I did for this, for the launch, is we hired a room in a pub and I got a vicar and a Satanist to come and give a speech about hell uh, from two different sides. <laughs> we charged £10 tickets, which got you a glass of wine and a copy of the book and, you know, entry to the, to the event. We sold, you know, 30 or 40 tickets and had a really great evening. You know, it was fascinating to have these two uh, voices. And I got a full page piece on the back of a newspaper as a result of it, became Book of the Week for that paper. The, pro- the promo paid off dividends. Um, it paid for itself and... People were still talking about it afterwards. You know, it's kind of and I, my rule of thumb was: is if I want, what would I like to go to? I wanted to put on, put on an event that was interesting enough that I would have paid ten quid to go to see. Um, and fortunately, it worked. So that was, yeah, that was a, a really memorable evening. Fantastic. But when I mean, I, I'm fascinated to know how that's you know when you were mulling ideas over how you struck <laughs> struck on that one was it a 3 a.m idea <laughs> i was it kind of grew out of the plot of the book because the pitch for complete darkness is that in the near future we map hell by mistake looking at dark matter um so my kind of what is hell you know because it's it's a fantasy to many people it's a scary you know tale to some it's a a, a reality to some fundamentals out there so um you know i think it, it, that kind of unknownness it's it's kind of everyone's got an opinion on it whether they think dismiss it as as some just a scary brainchild of of the medievalists who wanted to control villages by having one priest rather than the garrison soldiers or whether that's we all do have uh souls and our eternal outlook is either good or bad so um yeah that kind of ooh factor is is kind of what prompted me and it's interesting because, I mean, in, in modern discourse, we don't get those sort of discussions anymore, certainly in mainstream media, really. Um, I'm thinking of the occasion when the very, very famous um, example of when Life of Brian came out. Yes. And they had John Cleese and Michael Palin on one side, and they had uh, Malcolm Muggeridge and <laughs> Mervyn Stockwood, who was the Bishop of um, uh, Southwark at the time. Southwark, that's right, yeah. And uh, the way that that went, uh, and I think it was it was Tim Rice was the the MC of that particular debate, and <laughs> it is just brilliant to watch because it is a clash of generations. It's you yeah. know that the the, the the two sides. Well, I mean, clearly Cleese and Palin are the brighter of the two uh, parties. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's it's absolutely brilliant, but you don't get that sort of mm. debate. We're too anymore. scared to have that sort of debate now, though, aren't we? I think, well, I think we are. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's a good point. Um, and then my youth work kind of uh, side came out. We played a wide game in Kings Cross um, afterwards, and the challenge was to everyone who'd come: if you could go out into the pub or beyond, find someone who actually believes in hell, and bring them back, and they would explain why to the rest of the group, then they get to be a, a major character in the next book. And uh, so this one woman did. And um, that's fantastic. I love someone, And, you know, she, they may or may not have had a few points, but um, it, was, <laughs> it was, yeah, it was a lot of fun. And, and that's why there's uh, already a short story that's published and, and um, a major character coming up who's going to be a detective. Um, yeah, called Holly. So, yeah. Fantastic. That is, that is just a great story. And um, in terms of, I mean, you have a wider involvement in the in the writing world uh, yes. with Society of Authors. Oh yeah, oh yeah, in in Hertfordshire where you are, and 
I, I wanted to ask you, because we talked about this on the program last week, which was this mm-hmm. bookseller survey talking about oh. the the depression that people felt when they were freshly you know, published for the first Disillusionment. time. Disillusionment. Disillusionment yeah. with the industry. Is that something that you um, are picking up from, you know, the membership of the Society of Authors in your area, you know, is this is there a disillusionment developing within publishing? Or do you think that it's simply a question of people having unrealistic ex- expectations and, and therefore them falling short? Yeah, I think it really depends on the person. Um, I went into Eyes Open. I was just happy to be there, you know, delighted to have got any sort of contract. Everything else was a bonus. So and being able to you know, do things like stage a launch and, you know, now get a comic and things it's it's all that there's no disillusionment on my side but i have talked to authors who um were expected more i guess and you, you can't all be jk rowling that's the thing isn't it it's um there are i have friends one friend who's spent an obscene amount of money on some pr companies who said they could get them you know coverage uh and made no sales from it so you know they were seriously financially out of pocket they'd published themselves um you know, so we're talking over 10k spent with hardly any return and th- that would disillusion most people I think so um I think there's a lot of lessons to learn and if I'd been able to talk to this person before they'd gone ventured into that world we, I could have given them some good pointers to hopefully avoid some pitfalls because and that's one of the great things about society of authors is that it's a sounding board we have, mm. they have top lawyers they have book contract experts they have translators and international right experts if you've got any question about publishing or writing of any sort, they probably have an expert and that's they're like a trade union on your behalf. They will read contracts sent to you and advise you for free. Um, they will, you know, a lot of things. Um, they're just like having a, a knowledgeable friend on your side is how I describe it. Yeah. Mm. I mean, what some of our authors have, have well, once we started negotiating with them, they've talked to society of authors to get advice. And I've actually found it really useful as well from our perspective, what they've, things that they've noticed in the contract. And, and yeah, I thought, because we, ah, you, you know, know, ours was drafted in all good faith with a, with a, one of the leading lawyers in this sphere. But at cool. the same time, you know, we are conscious of the fact that uh, what is standard practice within major publishing is not necessarily appropriate for a smaller publisher. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure you know, lifetime plus 70 years and all that stuff is is, is difficult <laughs> yeah. to swallow sometimes. But it, it is, you know, it's a very valuable resource. And I think that um, I, I, what I'm interested to know, though, is in terms of the social side, of, I mean, now you're working within the crime sphere in the heist book. Um, can you, I mean, are there peers that you can draw uh, stuff from in within the Society of Authors within that field? Yeah, I mean, it's. I'd be lying if I said I hadn't talked to a few um, people through the network. Um, and but I think you, uh, I, I'm a firm believer that I guess maybe having done the junkets and stuff and talking to to big names um, and realizing they are just people at the end of the day, there's nothing wrong with reaching out to those who who you admire a great deal, uh, and that includes people you might want to get a jacket quote from your book mm. yeah, I'm a huge fan of Francesco Dimitri who's uh did a book of hidden things and um you know he's 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 it's going to be a big film at some point uh and I never thought he would read the manuscripts and come back with a delightful quote for the back cover of an unknown unpublished author but he did and so it's it's worth it um and I think just just taking the initiative because if you get someone on a good day they they, they may well have been where you are 
and they may have be uh, convenient to to helping you out to just mm. having that chat. Um, I guess it depends. There'll be some who, who won't have the time, energy, or inclination, but uh, push enough doors, and I think it's it's likely you'll get some some response. Yeah, and uh, it, I think that's right. I think that what's the worst they can say is no. Yeah, yeah so we always approach it. And sometimes I have to sort of remind myself, I mean, even though I, I was a journalist uh, for 25 years, 30 years nearly, um, there were times when, yeah, you did get a no and it was a knockback. But only, the, the worst thing about that was the fact that you were, you'd gone out there on behalf of, in my case, the BBC, and yeah. you kind of, your whole office is expecting you to deliver the goods <laughs> yes. for whatever reason, you haven't got it. Um, and that is the harder thing to to deal with, actually, is the... <laughs> well, that's why it's good to just two of us, because no one to let down. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How did you screw it up would be the, the you know, <laughs> would be the approach. But um, it's, I, I've got to ask you another question about that, that junket sure. thing, because I, I, I'm, I'm fascinated to know, <laughs> and I've got some examples myself, of when you've gotten, gone into a situation and whatever approach you've taken didn't work. And <laughs> <laughs> have you got anybody who, who was sullen and monosyllabic? Bruce Willis kind Who's of approach. The bloke, the, bloke yeah. the music I, bloke, I, who was funny with you. Not um, what's his name? I'm always in the kitchen at parties, man. Not him. No, but sounds a bit like him. Okay, well, we'll come back to that. <laughs> anyway, sorry. That's fine. Back um, to you, Matt. <laughs> yeah, I mean, most of them I managed to win over and, and get going. A, a couple of names do stick out, and one was incredibly surprising. Um, it was Morgan Freeman, and you know he's widely revered as such a lovely guy you know he's the guy that most people would want to read their epitaph apparently on some survey yeah. um and correct, yeah. but he was just having a bad day you know i don't know what had happened perhaps the person before me had really annoyed him <laughs> the world happens um but he was certainly didn't want to be there just wanted to just wanted to go you know and and i guess if you have to read the room and and understand that it's not going to be um all you wanted it to be um so I, you know, I almost ended up thinking on my feet, saying things to him, saying, would you say something like this? And he was like, yeah, I'll say that. So I had some quotes then I could actually at least quote, um, rather than just sitting there like a scared rabbit going, oh, well, it was nice to meet you. Because <laughs> you could yeah. draw a complete blank, like you said, and then your paper for me, you know, who's got a page you've got to fill, uh, would then be like, right, so where's this? Where's the Morgan Freeman I want to interview? Um, so there was that pressure, like you said before, but I think it makes you become fleet of foot and uh, creative in your approach. Um, and I, like I said, I've always learned that asking someone for a quote is is very different than saying, here's a great quote, would you say it? Because nine times out of 10, if it's a nice quote, they'll say yes. And you've mm. got it already written, proved and ready to go. Um, but giving someone a blank piece of paper, they may well say something that's not particularly useful, interesting or fun. Um, and so it's kind of, that's much more of a gamble. Yeah, I think that's that's very fair. I mean, the person you're referring to is Gary Newman. That's it. Oh, not, okay. not the kitchen at parties, man, but the yeah. what, our what friends' was, electric. Me with your rhythm stick. No, that's oh. in jury. <laughs> I saw him live. He's he's still quite good live. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, so I gather. Um, but the ago. you know the, the the problem was I wasn't expecting to do this interview, and I had an hour with him, and I I've told this wow. story, but. Um, I arrived at my. I was at a local radio station, and not far from you, on the same train line, Peterborough. <laughs> And okay. um, Heroid Radio, and I arrived at about 
I, my show started at six and I arrived at about half past four. And the receptionist goes, your guest is waiting in reception, you know, is uh, in the green room or wherever we have, you know, the pass for a green room. I said, what are you talking about? Who, who is it? Gary Newman, you're speaking to him for an hour before pre-record before you do the show. <laughs> oh, nice. And, I, and I'm going, hang on a second, what? And um, they said, oh, don't worry. Uh, the press release and the CD, I've got the CD here and the, and the press release. It was for his greatest hits. <laughs> yeah. And um, it basically descended into a, uh, he was not in a good mood uh, at all. He just had a hair transplant, so he looked like a loo oh, brush. Okay. <laughs> These crop circles in the forehead. Oh wow! And and uh, I I made and I've told this story, but uh, I made the mistake of saying to him when I was digging deep, and this was about forty minutes in, and and things were going, you know, I just kept playing the tunes and 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 letting you know, yeah, getting it out of that way. Um, I said, "You're a stunt pilot, aren't you?" It was some distant memory of reading Number One magazine, yeah, three or four years earlier, and he'd crashed a, a Russian fighter jet, and um, and he just went like a funny colour at me and just went, I am not a stunt pilot. I am a display pilot. It is a completely different discipline. And I take offence at someone describing me as a stunt pilot, which means I take unnecessary risks. And I said, yeah, but you did, you did uh, crash the yak that you were flying. No, you didn't uh, mention it. <laughs> <laughs> not so long ago. Uh, yeah, it descended wow. up. Yeah, let's put the, uh, let's put the extended mix of cars on. You know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> The twelve-inch uh, on repeat. <laughs> I was only I was only twenty at the time, and um, it was quite intimidating. But uh, there you go. So I mean, it's it's it is fascinating insight into that whole world when you when you are dealing with the PRs, and they're they're the trickier people to deal with normally because yeah, they they're so protective, they're so anxious. They're the gatekeepers, and they know yeah. that if this interview goes badly, they're going to cop it from yeah. said star. So they, they were always people I couldn't abide dealing with, if I'm honest. And 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 I'm, I shouldn't say this is you're a PR, you're in the PR game now. But my approach <laughs> from being a journalist was, yeah, can we just get the PR out of the room and we get on with doing a proper job? <laughs> yeah, I mean there are a lot of terrible PRs out there, and I, I, I'm not betraying my my profession by saying that. There are some who are who get paid for sending out press releases, not not if it runs, not if they get coverage, just for sending out press releases. Yeah, I mean, like that's that's ridiculous. I mean, that's like paying a soldier to per bullet that he fires, and he can just fire it at the wall. I mean, you know, um, <laughs> it's it's yeah. There's some terrible PRs that you know they'll send out press releases with typos that are boring as hell. Um, you know, it's it's just all the things you should, really shouldn't do, and still get paid. You know, it's it's it's. It's a strange world, isn't it? But yeah. having been both, having been a journalist and a PR, I think that really helps because I, I at least have some understanding of what they're looking for on the other side. Um, it can help fashion that. For sure. For sure. I think that's 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 incredibly valuable. Um, going back to your, your graphic novel experience now and the comics yeah. as well, uh, are you writing differently because you know that at some point, I mean, appreciate that you are converting complete uh, darkness into into the into that format yeah. but has it affected the way that you think about dialogue for instance because that's obviously the principal thing that goes in text wise into yeah, graphic it's, novels it's so different um the scripting element is so different to prose element um you just have so few words and you have to let visuals do so much of the talking i i i I'd say I struggle but I, it just it takes a lot of headspace to 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 understand how to tell a pictorial story as a 
when I'm used to writing just however many words I need and adding footnotes or whatever, uh, it ad nauseum. Um, that was a, a thing I had with my publisher. It's like, I'm not publishing a, a sci-fi book with, with footnotes in it throughout. And then some of the footnotes are like three pages long. I was like, have you read uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Noel? Because like, you know, that has three page footnotes in it. It was like, does it? I'm like, yeah. So, and I, I've yeah. actually just read a crime, a crime novel, well, sort of a crime novel by um, author called Fiona Elskine. 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 Elskine, that's it. Elskine. And that has footnotes and, and end notes and sort of notes about the, some of the real people mentioned in the book as well. And it's about chemistry, explains chemistry, but it's been published as a crime yeah. novel. So, absolutely anything goes as far as I'm concerned. Plus, the joy of my footnotes is that they're entirely made up. They're a fairly funny anecdotal kind of stuff. So like, you know, there's a conference of um, atheists uh, called There's No God and We Can Prove It. And a, a, an orbital platform hits it and the news report it as an act of God and that sort of thing. It's kind of <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who, who's your greatest inspiration? Um, oh, in terms- this is easy. Um, yeah. Ian Banks, um, God rest his soul. Uh, he was the master sci-fi writer but he also to get published he wrote the wasp factory through a sort of more mainstream i guess horror sort of uh crimey element um but he was just such a character and i got the absolute joy to meet him and he inspired me a great deal i was just one of the guys standing there fan servicing with my copy of his uh, i think it was use of weapons to be signed uh, but he took the time to chat and people behind me were getting really annoyed because i kept asking questions about <laughs> Right plot and narrative and you know we're sort of thing because I was deep into my manuscript creation point at that that, that time and he was an absolute love I obviously caught him on a good day mm. oh fantastic he's, oh, he's a great writer though oh. that's a I approve of your inspiration <laughs> totally right I think we are approaching that 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 time now oh, well we? yeah I know it, it probably feels to you... quickly say um, yes. he was um I found out recently that he was an extra in Monty Python's Holy Grail as well he's one of the knights I was, was like, he? that is so cool. I mean, that is, cool. that is a great connection. Yeah, that is fantastic. Right. Well, let's um, let's 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 sort of uh, let's drop the tone a little bit. You might feel okay. this whole conversation has been enormously random, and and in many ways it has. But that's the way that I think our brains work. But now it is the formal okay. moment we've all been waiting for. Rebecca's random question. Well, weirdly, it is related to some of the things we've been talking about. So. Okay. Although it was randomly generated by my brain, um, it's about hell, and Ooh. I want to know, right? You've just carked it, and you're standing at the gates, and they're saying you're going to hell. You have to convince them that they're wrong. What would you say? Wow, I mean, gosh, on the spot, and I, can you imagine that exact scenario? It's probably gone for a lot of people, people's minds as they realise that they're about to cark it, as you say. Um, I think I would, because I have some theological knowledge, having worked for a theological college back in the day, um, I would throw myself on the infinite mercy of God, because you can't have an infinite mercy if it then has a cutoff point saying, oh, I know it's infinite, but but what you've done is beyond that. Um, <laughs> I think you could make a fairly good case for, you know, for questioning. So you're not, you haven't got infinite mercy, you know. If if they put me directly through to God, um, I could have that uh, semantics question with him. It's probably my best shot. He might just get annoyed and say we'd help anyway, just for being so impertinent. But um, uh, <laughs> probably worth a, worth a try. I like that one. Yeah, and they'll, they'll probably go. Oh, it's the infant. He's, 
damn it. Yeah. He's seen the, the Twitter campaign. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Honestly, they're all doing it now. Um, well, how about you? What would you say? What would I say? Uh, See, gosh. I, I always say the question at him as well. Do you? Okay. <laughs> that is a fabulous question. And, and actually, you know, I'm pretty convinced I'm heading there. So, um, <laughs> you know, I just think I'd probably, you know, if there's, if there's a, a stratification in hell, I think I'd probably write, I'm, I'm going to write it off. I'm just going to say, can I go travel first class? <laughs> um, yes. You know. <laughs> But it depends on who who's in that first class. I mean, you know, I don't really want to hang out with uh, mass murdering dictators, although I do well, find them absolutely fascinating. Well, the really PR guys are probably in there as well. You know, yeah, there'll be a few. Of them. There'll yeah. be a few. I think Gary Newman. I mean, you know, creatively great, but that interview, I'm, you know, he certainly. Yeah. <laughs> I think that actually, I'm, I, this is a terrible thing to say. I think the the worst celebrity encounter, the one that that spun out of control, in a way I never expected, and it was. Uh, was with Lionel Blair, and um, who had turned up at my office, and I was busy trying to put together a TV piece for the six thirty regional news, and uh, it was like twenty past six, and I still had put my voice track on it, and it, I was under enormous stress. Yeah, I bet. And he turned up. He was expecting to do an interview up the line to London on the radio, and uh, you know, you can imagine Lionel Blair doesn't doesn't read the signals in the room, i.e., we're massively busy. Please shut the up yeah um he 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 just jabbered and i was not paying any attention to what he was saying so everything i said Uh-oh. was yeah no nah, as you do sometimes when you're in a conversation you can't you can't get away from but you don't really want to engage and yeah, every time no. i said yes or no i was saying the wrong thing because oh. he was saying you think that oh my god you shouldn't be working for the bbc and all this sort of thing and okay i've no idea so everything i did made just wound him up even further oh brilliant you do that with me sometimes. I do, yeah. yeah. You're right. You're right. So that that you know, I think if Lionel Blair was in first class of hell, then I'm 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 ducking it. Okay. Send me send me in with the, the plebs. I'd probably just cry and hope they felt sorry for me and say, Oh, go on there and go to heaven. None of your <laughs> tears. That's a great well, question. I to business class once, so you know, it does work. It's <laughs> a good question though. Thank you for that. That's all right. Well, yeah. what a what a way to bring things to to. It's been a real pleasure speaking to you, Matt, and and Same. really, really enjoyed it. Um, where can people find more about you? They're, the best place is either to follow me on any social media, and I'm cleric twenty. That's cleric as in the clerical uh, words, and number two zero. I have been for many years, and people didn't know why the hell I'd done that until they read Complete Darkness and realised that he's the main character of, of you know complete darkness and in the future they put numbers in people's names because they can and they oh right yeah i must have your email and i did wonder um, that it's also my email <laughs> has been for many years yeah that sort of thing um so google search that um find complete darkness novel.com uh, which is the website uh yeah you know just brilliant i look forward to engaging people i love talking to people on social media you know good bad or ugly <laughs> well that's that's us in that or indeed Lionel Blair if he was still with us so uh, anyway thank you so much it's been an absolute pleasure Matt Hackock thank you great and what a way to start the second half of the show <laughs> with Aki making her presence felt hello Aki well uh, lovely to speak to Matt and uh, let's before we move on to uh, talking about what we're doing 
in the next few days. Uh, let's look ahead to next week's guest. So next week's guest is a lady called Rachel Corsini, who is in America. I'm not exactly sure where, but she's got a book coming out, um, I guess, in just over a week's time called um, Sushi and Sea Lions. It's a gorgeous cover. So I'm looking forward to finding out more about her book. Yeah, Rachel Corsini next week, then, our guest on the Hopcast Book Show. So the week to come. It uh, is, well, we've got the coronation, we've had that. And, and you're going to London tomorrow. I am going to London. So the day after the coronation, which is a bit weird, um, I'm going to London to see some my oldest friends, uh, two, uh, one of whom has flown over with his American wife and his daughter. Uh, they split their time between Miami and Brooklyn. Uh, he works in, in New York. And um, they've flown over for the coronation because uh, Marianne is a massive, massive royal fan. So uh, lovely to see them. And, of course, it means the gathering of the clan. People, yeah. I was at sixth form it's college I was going to say, it's your sixth form mates, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, my closest and oldest friends. Um, and those types of relationships where you just slot straight back into the banter and the energy and the relationships that you've always had, Yeah. even though we're now in our 50s. So I, I was going to come with you, but I decided against it in the end. Yeah, you did. You Partly did. because I just thought it's it's you and all your sixth form friends. And it's quite nice, um, you know, to have that dynamic. And also, I've just got too much to do. You have. You have frankly. so much to do. Well, you both have quite a bit. And uh we are also building up to a little trip to Bristol for next. Well, we'll be uh, reporting from Crime Fest next week. We're not actually going for the whole thing. We're going for just the day. Um, we'll record something there briefly. You know, probably do the, the body of the show yeah. while we're in Bristol. Uh, chance to catch up with some of our authors and obviously some of the big names that are there. Just rub shoulders, that sort of thing. Yeah, check just... in really. We we went for the whole lot last year, but we couldn't justify the expense this year of a hotel for three nights and the the price of the tickets was monumental. So um, we will just be hanging out in the bar for a bit. Yes, drinking gin and tonic. Well, yeah, I mean, if <laughs> well, maybe. We, well, maybe if, if I'm driving, that won't be happening. So I'll, I'll make up for it tomorrow. Oh, I'll I'll drink some gin for you then, shall I? Yeah. Yeah, um, we are, you know, tons and tons of projects. We are talking to, uh, well, we might have some new author news for you by the end of next week, maybe, possibly. Oh, potentially. It might be a little longer. I don't know, but we'll see. We're we we, we are in negotiation with, a, with a very exciting And I'm still working through submissions. And uh, actually, yesterday I auditioned for a new audiobook project, which I'm very excited about if I do get it for a new company that I haven't worked with before in the United States. So uh, that would be great. I had another offer of an audition today, but it was um, I needed to have an Irish uh, New York accent. Um, oh, can you it, do an Irish New York and accent? And it was sort of mid-30s voice, which I can do, but I can't do that voice, that actual accent. That's quite specific, isn't it's it? It's very specific, and it was a, rom a romance, a steamy erotic uh, romance. And you're so good at that. You, well, I, I have a certain uh, je ne sais quoi for that sort of thing. But... It's not really my my uh, my area You're of expertise. You're better at battles. I am better at battles. Um, In life as well. <laughs> hardly. Anyway, thank you so much for joining us. Don't forget, of course, to check out our website, www.hobeck.net. There is one thing I should say oh. before you go into the final bit. Last week, we also um, took ownership of the Henshaw of Press short story competition. So that started on Monday. And um, I confess, I not forgot that we were taken over on that day, but it just slipped my mind because I was so busy. And then suddenly <laughs> I realised and thought, oh, yes. Um, so that's very exciting. We've had some entries already. Yeah. 
So if there are any budding short story writers out there, just check out www.henshawpress.co.uk to find out how to enter. Yeah. And, and uh, top we- prize, £200. Ooh. And it's four times a year that we're uh, running this. Yeah, it? it's four times a year. And the winning stories also get published in an anthology. So we're currently working on um anthology of the winners of the last competition, plus a few before that. And that that will be published this June as well. So that's very exciting. That's why we're so busy doing yeah. that as well. well yeah, <laughs> we're sort of piling itself up. There's a pile of Aki hair has just flown in the air. She jumps off the sofa. Bye, Aki. Well, it's our opportunity to say goodbye to you too. Thank you so much for joining us on the Hopcast Book Show. Don't forget to subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts from. We're the more the merrier is is the phrase. Uh, my name's Adrian Hobart. Uh, my name is Rebecca Collins, and we'll look forward to speaking to you next week. Uh, so, between now and then, have a wonderful and creative week. Bye bye. You've been listening to the Hopcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit.